0: Welcome to Built to Go, a van life podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Wagg, coming to you from the College of Curiosity. This time it's episode 146, and we're going to talk about all the new vans that are coming down the pike. That's right, it's it's pike, not pipe, like a turnpike, get it? We're also going to talk about using your diesel heater while you're driving. Yes, it's possible, but you have to be careful. Tail from the road, actually tails, involving good landings, those you can walk away from, and a product review of... Uh, something specifically male in shape. I'll talk a little bit more about that. Well, hello everyone. Welcome back. Or I should say, welcome me back because I'm back. I am in Chicago. I'm in the United States. I drove my van today for the first time in three weeks. And of course it had a new light on. I was like, what? You've got to be kidding me. Yeah, it's no big deal. My, my low coolant light came on and I just had that system worked on before I parked it and, uh, a bubble came up. I hope, I hope there's no leak. I couldn't find a leak. Anyway, we're not going to talk about that because I don't want to talk about that. <laughs> we're going to talk about all the new vans that are coming down the pike that hopefully one day will be turned into camper vans. Although we're in this weird time where the world is kind of toying with the idea of going EV, but then eh, maybe not. And in in my mind, unless there is incredible political obstruction in the way, which could happen, EVs are coming. 10 years, 20 years from now, everyone's going to be driving an EV, well, not everyone, but most people, and we're going to look at gasoline and diesel-powered vehicles the way we look at CRT monitors today. That's my prediction. I certainly could be wrong. But at the very least, we have to pay attention to all these vans that are coming because most, if not all, of the new vans that are coming are EV. And I will talk about some exceptions here. So this is not a complete list. This is just what I saw was in the news lately. And I'm going to talk about six different vans that are coming down the pike. And um, some of them are interesting. Some of them aren't. And some of them are eh, kind of just pure marketing. And, And let's start with that one. I know a lot of people were excited about the announcement from Ford that they're going to create this new van just for van life. It's called the Transit trail, and it's got, you know, knobby tires, and it's got a big step that goes on the side, and oh gosh, they put an extra 12-volt outlet in the back, and there's even an inverter in it. I mean, you can plug in household items in the back. I mean, it's like magic, and gosh, there's an optional max air fan, and uh, I I am very unimpressed (laughs) with the transit trail, because... It's just a trim line of their regular van. They haven't really done anything new here. They've taken their regular van and you know, all right, I suppose being able to get a factory lift kit is new. The van is lifted and it's all wheel drive, which is, you know, they've had anyway. But this van is incredibly expensive and it comes, you know, it it's not done. It, it's not like you get a camper van, you're just getting another empty van that you have to build out and some of the stuff they've done is kind of well, it's kind of dumb. You know, adding that inverter in there that runs off the battery that's under the hood, the starter battery, and it's super weak. I mean, these things just don't provide that much power. But not for a van life person, anyway. I, I like why, why, why add that stuff that's just getting in the way? And the rugged looks and all that—I uh, don't know. That, none of that does anything for me. So. To my mind, you're better off getting whatever kind of transit van you want and then making it what you want. I don't think you're actually going to save any money by buying this thing, and it's probably going to come with some crap that you don't want. I mean, it's not terrible, but it's, it's marketing rather than you know somebody saying, this segment of the marketplace needs this. We should create it. It's somebody saying, this segment of the marketplace is actually a sucker for this kind of stuff. Let's do that. That's my take on it, and I'm happy to hear contradictory opinions. But that takes us to the Ford EV. Now, Ford has had an EV van for a couple of years now, and uh, yeah, they, they work fine, except that they don't go very far. <clears throat> That's just the problem with a lot of these EV vans. They are not meant to go long distances because most delivery vans, which is what these things tend to be used for most often, don't go very far. You know, you can look outside and see your UPS, your FedEx, your Amazon vans out there, and they're busy. They're going all day long, but they're doing 30 miles a day, 20 miles a day. And they're a perfect application for an electric vehicle because, they're not using any energy while they're sitting there. And that means that a small battery can actually get them through the entire day. And then they can park it all night long and charge all night long, which some of these you have to, like the Ford EV with a 220 charger, Takes twelve hours to charge the battery to full. And folks remind me that you never do that because you just always top it up. And no, I get it. But it's just a marker to show that these vans would be very difficult to use for van life unless you weren't driving very much. If you were going to do something like you were going to go campground to campground at fifty miles a time and then plug it in at the campground, yeah. That might work, but that's not how most people use vans, in my opinion. I mean, most of us are like, I'm fully self-sufficient. I am never going to go to a campground. I'm just going to park in a bush and be completely happy. And this van is not that van but they're still making them and hopefully they will keep working on that capacity i mean it seems kind of a no-brainer to me to make one of these vans with a much larger battery and a faster charging system and you know reduce the payload a bit because we don't care that much about payload i mean we do but that's not our prime motivator but i don't know we'll see it it's all about how they can make money and we are not a huge money maker for them (laughs) especially since most of us buy used vans now, Mercedes has done something interesting, and this isn't actually new, but it seems to be new to the U.S. I said, uh, oh, a bunch of episodes ago that they were getting rid of their diesels, and that's true, but what I neglected to notice was that they're just coming out with new diesels. So, the Sprinter has always had either a five- or six-cylinder diesel engine in it. That was always an option, and most of them that you see on the road have a six-cylinder diesel engine. Well, that's gone. All gone. That engine is dead. The six-cylinder diesel sprinter is no more but they've got a four-cylinder diesel now. Now, for those of you who are like, well, why are they making it less powerful? No, that's not how it works. The number of cylinders does not mean more power. I mean, that's the way they tend to be built, but it's not the number of cylinders that creates power in general. It's the amount of displacement. So four big cylinders can produce more power than six small cylinders, and that's what they're going with here. Four cylinders also is much less complex and more fuel efficient, because you don't lose an efficiency coefficient on each cylinder. And four is a more stable number for the engine than six. Generally, you want engines to be divisible by four, because you get a a more stable engine that way. Yeah, and, and I'm getting too deep in the woods with engines here, but yeah, but yeah four six, six is weird. (laughs) That's all there is. Three and six are weird, (laughs) but uh, anyway, it's gone. So they are, you know, they're going to make sprinters as always. They're still incredibly expensive, but hopefully this new engine will help them out with all the reliability problems that they don't talk about very much, but believe me are there. Now, Mercedes also has an electric van. I don't believe they're in the U.S. at all. I've never seen one. And it has the same problems as the Ford, where it's got a little tiny range of like 110 miles. But they're testing one now that has a 300-mile range. Now, I think this is the tipping point. If we can get an electric van with a 300-mile range that can be charged very quickly, like the way that a Tesla or an, an electric Kia or something like that can, I think then we're talking. I think then we are looking at an electric van that can be usable for much of van life. It's still not going to be suitable for people who want to go into BLM land for two weeks and climb mountains with their vans because solar is nowhere near in any shape to charge vans let's let's settle that right now you will not be charging your vans drive batteries with solar anytime soon i mean you can but it's going to take days and weeks to get any usable power because these things use much more power than your solar panels can produce that's just the bottom line however imagine if we can get to the point where solar panel efficiency can be improved enough to power these things i mean you know then we're living in the future So anyway, the Mercedes-Electric, I think, will be interesting, and because it's a Mercedes, I expect it will be super expensive, and Mercedes, like BMW, is starting this trend of subscriptions to things in the car. Like, BMW just came out with a subscription to the seat warmers. You have to pay a yearly subscription for the seats to stay warm. And some other car companies have a subscription to a power package where the computer is programmed to give you more power, and you have to pay for that annually. And I wouldn't be surprised if Mercedes did that with their electric van. And on that, that's all I have to say. Now, ProMaster also has the EV coming out, and it also is fairly low capacity right now. And by all reports, it's just exactly the same as a ProMaster. It's just electric. So there's not that much news on it yet. I've been looking around at it, and basically, they're just putting in an electric powertrain to their existing configuration. Of course, it's called the E-Ducato in Europe, and um, nothing really revolutionary there. So... Mm, i mean sure bring it on but again we've really got to solve this range and charging speed problem now the ones who are doing the most interesting thing in this space is surprising it's chevy so the chevy express van foresty foresty uses one chrome uses one these are very common vans you see them all the time and it's a van design that hasn't changed much in decades it's the last of the big iron u.s vans And it's going away in 2025. But it apparently is going to be replaced by this thing made by Bright Drop. Now, this is like the future. This is like future van. You know, this is like watching some 70s sci-fi show and looking at their weird vehicles. It's, It's one of those. This thing is completely different than any other van. I mean, it's like a rolling box with LED lights, a massive front window, and the entire thing is all high tech. I'll have a link in the show notes, but you have to look at this. This is a totally different kind of thing. Now, its starting range for this thing is 250 miles on a full charge. So, all right, that's, that's getting to be sort of respectable. Reports are that the Chevy version of the Bright Drop is going to be quite a bit different than the one they're producing now as, an, as a delivery van. And the term I saw was that he'll have lesser specs. And I don't know what they mean by that. I mean, lesser range? That would be silly. Maybe lesser payload? Or maybe it's smaller? That might be good because these are actually quite large vans. Uh, and, and, and actually, listen to these specs. This is, this is kind of exciting for this van. It's 83.68 inches wide inside. 83. That's super wide. That I mean, that's like box van wide. And, and you could easily put a side-to-side bed there. And the height of the roof, or the, I'm sorry, the height of the ceiling in the box is 82 inches. That's 6'10". However, the step height is 16 inches. <laughs> so, you got to kind of climb into the thing, but then when, once you're in there, it's cavernous. So, completely new, completely something different. It will be interesting to see who's the first one to make a working camper van out of this thing and then to see how well that works. So, you know, it's another thing about EV. Again, I am a fan of EV. I do think it is the future, but you can't just strap more electricity onto your vehicle, and and that's something that the overlanding community has always done. Get some jerry cans, you've put more gas on the back, and you've extended your range, and that just doesn't work for EV right now. I, I mean, yeah, you could bring a generator, but uh, that's kind of cheating, I think. So, anyway, lots of problems to solve with EV. I'm still a fan, and every one of these things is an incremental step towards getting there, and Yeah, I think 10 years from now, I'll be on this podcast talking about... (laughs) Remember those silly vans we had that had tailpipes? (laughs) Tech Talk. Hey, I I saw a question. Um, Can you use your diesel heater while you're driving? Well, yeah. I mean, sure. There's there's nothing about your vehicle that's stopping you from using your diesel, diesel heater while you're driving. But you do have to be aware of some things. When you're driving your van, your alternator is or can be at max output, so your voltage is going to go up, and some 12-volt motors don't like that. Max air fans are one, and cheap Chinese diesel heaters, mm, maybe. I mean, they're cheap Chinese diesel heaters. These things are not robust. If you have an Eberspatcher or whatever, it should be fine. But, yeah, sure, there's a chance you're going to send too much power to the fan, it's going to spin too fast, and something's going to burn out. But I've never heard of that happening, and I really don't think it's a concern. Your bigger concerns are air. So you have an exhaust pipe and you have an intake pipe, and these are both mounted outside the vehicle, right? Outside the vehicle. I know some people put their intakes inside the vehicle, but that's actually kind of a bad idea, and I've talked about that before, but you don't want to do that. So you have them both outside. But at highway speeds, you do not want air to get in those. If you, if like, for example, if your exhaust was facing forwards and you had the full force of 70, 80 mile an hour air going into that, that would be bad. That would totally screw up the system and you might even get exhaust in your cabin. So you don't want that. Same thing with the intake. You don't want any air pressure in there either way because the system is assuming a certain air pressure. That's what it's tuned for. But other than that... You know, if you mount those things in a place where you don't have to worry about that, your exhaust is facing backwards and your air intake is safely nestled up against the body of the van somewhere, yeah, you're fine. But there's a bigger question here. Why are you doing this? And that's an interesting question to answer. Because you basically have an engine, if you're not using an EV at this point. <laughs> if you're using an EV, I totally see why you would want to do this. But if you're using a... a fossil fuel based vehicle you have free heat you have lots of free heat in fact a major portion of the stuff under the hood is there just to throw away heat that's what your radiator is it's just there to get rid of excess heat you are creating tons and tons of heat so why not just use that in the back And you can do that the way my ambulance does it, which is that I have an auxiliary heater back there and coolant runs back into the van and goes through another little radiator and there's a fan and that keeps the back nice and toasty, but that's complex and costs money and stuff. What a lot of people do is they will just run a hose, any kind of hose from the passenger floor vent into the back of the van. And then you turn on the heat up front and you're filling the back of the van with heat for free and i really think that makes a lot more sense than than using your diesel heater while you're driving I, I i there are limited cases for using the diesel heater while driving it almost always is worth the effort to run some engine heat back there it's a big topic but yes you can do it but if you're going to do it think about why you're doing it if you're just being lazy well okay if your front heater broken well okay but yeah think about using the engine first Tales from the road. Well, actually, these are kind of tales from the air. I've got two tales. One of them's old and one of them's new. And the first one is I was flying National Airlines, which no longer exists, from. I think I was flying from Dulles. Anyway, doesn't matter. I was going to Vegas for whatever reason, and they had a nice flight from Dulles to Vegas, and I lived near Dulles, and, you know, I used to fly National all the time. I really liked them. Nice little airline. And they had little planes, you know, they're flying the little Brazilian planes and they were super nice. And uh, I was on the way there once and the pilot came on and said, "Uh, well, folks, we're circling the airport because we have a problem with the flaps. We can't extend them. And this is what that means. So we're going to land normally, but we're going to be landing much faster than you're used to. We're going to take up the full runway, and we're going to be chased down the runway by fire engines because there's a good chance our brakes are going to catch on fire. So sit tight, enjoy the rest of the flight, and I'll talk to you soon. Now, upon hearing this, a bunch of us looked at each other, and, uh, you know, this is what we do in times of crisis. People will look around to see, should I be reacting to this? And the passengers were like, oh, whatever. Honestly, we we really weren't that concerned about it. But the flight attendant. Now, this was a small plane. We had one flight attendant. It was a man. He was mid-20s. He looked terrified. (laughs) He was in one of those jump seats that faced backwards so we could all see him. And after the captain came on, he came on and said, ladies and gentlemen, please put your tray tables in their upright locked position, you know, blah, 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 all that stuff. And that sounded fine. But then he had trouble hanging up the the little telephone thing, (laughs) and then he had trouble putting the buckles on his seat, and he had this look of abject terror on his face. And, you know, am I supposed to be taking cues from him, or should I just listen to the pilot? Uh, I don't know. So, eh, I'm not a panicky person in these situations, so I was just like, yeah, whatever. We're going to land, and it'll be one we can walk away from, or it won't. I was just really curious as to what was going on with this flight attendant. So we did land, and it was very much like the pilot suggested it was. We came in very fast. It was noticeable. And we hit the runway actually fairly soft. You'd think we would have hit it harder, but no, it was fairly soft. And we just slowed down for a long time. And sure enough, looking out the window as much as I could, which is kind of hard. It's kind, you can't really look backwards in airplanes. But yeah, the fire engines finally caught up with us, and we just sat there on the runway for a little bit, and then we got out of the plane, the end. That's it. That's an emergency landing. (laughs) That's all. That's all there was to it. And uh, that was the first and only time that had happened to me until (laughs) I just flew back from Atlanta on Thanksgiving. So I was on this big, long trip. I flew from Buenos Aires to Atlanta, and then Atlanta to Chicago on Thanksgiving and I was going to be done and I'd been up forever and I was tired and we take off from Atlanta and we reach cruising altitude everyone's watching their movies and then there's this bang and the plane starts to drop and quickly recovers. It was dropping for maybe two seconds. You know we hit an air pocket. This this happens if you fly enough eventually you're going to hit an air pocket where the plane will just fall and then it recovers and it's fine seatbelt sign comes on And I noticed there's a little different kind of sound in the plane, I'll talk about that in a minute, but after a couple minutes, the flight attendants come on and say, ladies and gentlemen, for safety, we've had to suspend flight services at this time, please remain seated with your seatbelt buckled for the duration of the flight. Meaning we weren't going to get our drinks. I mean, it's fairly short flights, not even two hours, but still, I was like, I could have used a Diet Coke. Anyway, I didn't think anything of it, I figured we had hit turbulence and there was going to be more turbulence and yeah, whatever. But this was an A320, an Airbus 320. It's a plane I have flown in a lot. The uh, 319 and the 320s were the mainstay of JetBlue's fleets back in the early 2000s, and I used to fly them almost weekly. And I got to learn the noises. If you fly enough, you can hear the sounds and start associating them with actions. Like, you can hear when the landing gear is brought up, you can hear when you reach cruising altitude, or when you're starting your descent, or when the flaps are extended when the landing gear comes down, all that stuff, you can hear it. And A320s are a very talkative plane. There's a hydraulic pump that is very loud inside the plane and you can hear it. And, and I asked somebody what it was, uh, the mechanic, and they said it, it equalizes pressure from one side of the plane to the other. You've basically got an engine on each wing and there's a hydraulic system and this pump's job is to keep the pressure on both sides of the plane. At least that's how it was explained to me. This pump normally makes a lot of sounds after you land. So the plane lands, and then this thing goes, and you may have heard this yourself if you're flying. And the reason it's doing that is because when they land, they turn off one engine, and they actually only use one engine to go to the gate. And the pump then has to basically take pressure from the side that's working and send it to the side that's not working. That's all. It's something like that. I'm probably explaining this terribly, but that's the basic idea. Anyway, I heard that noise, and we were still in the air. <laughs> I thought, well, that's odd. And I thought, well, I guess I just don't understand how this system works well enough. And it was a little bit different. It wasn't the same kind of noise. It was a little bit more urgent. Now, I was not in a window seat. I couldn't see much. But we just flew on like this for an hour, and everything was fine. It was actually a very smooth flight. And I was thinking, well, this is really smooth. Why aren't they bringing us drinks? And then the pilot came on and said... Uh, Hello, folks. Um, we are no longer going to Midway. We are now going to land at O'Hare because we have, I think he actually worded it, we're only flying on one engine. Now, this is a normal part of flight operations. It's not a big deal. But we're going to fly to O'Hare, and we're going to be met by a bunch of fire engines, and they're going to make sure that we're not leaking fluid or that there aren't any fires or anything like that. So just sit tight, and I apologize that we're going to a different airport, but it's for the best. Now, you know, flaps... A lot of people don't understand flaps. I mean, I understand that they make the wings basically wider so you can fly at a slower speed and land at a slower speed. This is an engine we're talking about. I think most people understand engines, and missing one sounds really bad, right? I mean, there's two engines on there for a reason. Well... We d- apparently didn't have one, we we only had one engine, and at first I thought we'd like lost the engine like it was ripped off the plane, but I, I think I would have heard about that from some of the other passengers. No, the the engine just stopped working and they shut it down. And uh, yeah, we had to go all the way to O'Hare from Midway, which they're basically airports on opposite sides of the city, and I'm actually closer to Mid- O'Hare, so it was good news for me, except that you know we were potentially going to crash and burn and die. And the plane came into O'Hare and went way out over the lake. And I knew what it was doing. There's a a big, long approach to the airport that's way over the lake and then comes in and then lands at a runway that's really far from the terminals and it's really long. And that's what they did. They diverted us to O'Hare so we could have a really long runway to try to sort things out. And then what happened? Well, we just landed normally. (laughs) I mean, really, that's all there was to it. Planes don't need two engines. The the other engine is there for some efficiency factors and as a redundancy, but you don't need them. I mean, you can fly a 747 on one engine, and they normally have four. And they're used for takeoff. Takeoff's when you need that power to get up there. But once in the air, all that engine is doing is maintaining speed. It's overcoming friction and things like that and drag. Anyway. Yeah, if you're ever in this situation and you lose an engine, eh, don't freak out. It, 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 the plane landed fine, and yes, the fire engines did come and circle the plane, and they held us on the the tarmac. I have a friend who hates that term as a pilot. For a few minutes, but then we just got off the plane and uh, went home. In fact, it was the fastest I'd ever gotten home. I got from the airport to my house in 17 minutes, which it can often take 90, So, because it was Thanksgiving, there was traffic. Yeah, I have survived two emergency landings now, and I'm confident that if you ever find yourself in an emergency landing, you're going to survive too because eh, they're really not that big of a deal. Product review. Uh, why am I talking about this? So I I did this, this big trip, and I wanted to bring only three sets of clothes, and that includes underwear, and well, underwear, you know, wearing three different pairs of underwear for three weeks, eh, you're going to need to clean it. So I, I got some underwear that was rapidly cleaned. And so I got this underwear called Sepratech. So SeparaTech. No, this isn't sponsored. I know that Separatech, the company, does actually sponsor people on podcasts and YouTube and stuff, but they didn't for me. And that's okay. Um, their underwear... Um, let's just say this is specifically for folks with a male anatomy. Um, their underwear... Men's underwear has usually, not always, some sort of an opening at the front, and it can come in different kind of configurations depending on a bunch of things. This configuration is fairly radical. Yeah, and basically, you've got two pouches. You've got one for the family jewels, and the other for Mister Business, uh, or shall we say, twigs and berries? You've got you've got the berries. The berries sack, um, this is not going well. The berries pouch and the twig pouch. And they're separate, hence the name Seperatech. You're basically cradling them away from each other in a way that's supposed to be more comfortable for men. And I thought, oh, what the heck, I'll give it a try. I mean, that's not really something I'm overly concerned about, but these are fast-drying underwear, and that's actually what I was after, and they were relatively reasonably priced. You can spend $50 for a pair of underwear that's fast-drying, and I think that's silly. So I got them, and I wore them a bit before the trip, and then I wore them on the trip. And um, yeah, well, so... I can tell you that the fast drying part worked great. They were very easy to wash in the sink and hang up and have ready for the next day. They're very lightweight, easy to pack. They are great travel underwear. They checked off every box for that. They're a little bit different. Um, They're not cotton. There's some, there's some synthetic fabric and cotton. Cotton is bad for long-term travel like this in general. I won't get into too much depth about that, but generally you want to avoid cotton. Cotton feels really good at first and then feels really, really bad. Sweat acts differently with this material, so these feel weird at first, but after you've been wearing them for a while, they're actually much better. But the separation part to me was weird. Um, There was definitely some confusion as to what was going where, and definitely some sensations that were unusual, that I'm like, am I gonna, is this bad, is something going on? And uh, I found I had to be a little bit more cautious with zippers, which, um, yeah, zippers, no, no bad. And, uh, in the end, I had a couple of problems at, uh, you know, urinals where I was like, where is it? Where is it? I don't know. I can't, it, you know, I have all this muscle memory for doing this stuff from having done it for 25 years or so. And, uh, yeah, no, I, I lost all that with this. I had to kind of figure out the configuration of my plumbing technology and anyway, Do I recommend these? Um, Yeah, actually, I think you should try them out. Uh, I don't think they're going to do much for anybody with female anatomy. Nope, this is not for you. But those of us with male anatomy, these can be a good thing. Uh, Again, the travel part is great, and I think for some people... This separation technology is actually going to be a really comfortable thing. It all depends on how you're shaped and how you dress, as they say. Uh, and I just looked at their website and noticed that now they make underwear that doesn't have those pockets. <laughs> <laughs> so they're like, we've got this great new idea. And then a couple of years later, um, yeah, we make normal underwear too, which mm, may be kind of telling. Anyway, it's called Separatec S E P A R A T E C. And you can find them at separatech.com. I'll have a link in the show notes. And no, I'm not affiliated with them, except that they're cradling my junk. Resource recommendation. This resource recommendation is for the self-Heimlich. Uh, you're familiar with the Heimlich maneuver, which is someone comes behind you and basically gives a sharp thrust under your rib cage. And that causes you to expel any food that you might be choking on. But what if you're alone? And the reason I'm bringing this up is because this just happened to me. It was the day after Thanksgiving and I was totally lazing out. I was dazed from all my travel and my in-laws had brought over tons of turkey and I'm literally sitting on the couch half dressed with a turkey leg just kind of mindlessly eating a turkey leg. I mean it, I'm glad there weren't any pictures cuz <laughs> it would have been quite the scene. But I did something weird. I mean I was eating just very lazily and I exhaled before I took a bite. And I swallowed like that. And then I guess I kind of started to breathe in at the same time. And anyway, I ended up inhaling a big chunk of turkey. But I didn't have any air in my lungs. And it it got stuck. Now, I mean, everyone's had a little bit of food stuck in their throat from time to time. And you cough and it comes out. And you're like, you know, people laugh at you, whatever. I was alone. And I couldn't cough because I didn't have any air in my lungs. Now, again, I'm somebody who doesn't panic easily, which is a very lucky thing for me. And I thought, well, what am I going to do? I have no air. I have a very limited amount of time to act. And I couldn't really do anything. So I had automatically set up in my mind that I was going to self-Heimlich. Before that, though, because it can be a self-Heimlich is not without risks and pain, um, I decided I was going to try something else. I could get a little bit of air by the turkey that was stuck in my throat. It was like breathing through a cocktail straw. Not the big ones, the ones that are too little, tiny holes. It took a lot of effort, but I did it. And I just, using kind of all my strength, inhaled as much as I could. And very slowly, air was sneaking past that turkey going, I mean, I could hear it. Until I got enough air in my lungs that I could cough. And then thankfully, I was able to cough and dislodge the turkey and then pant for a bit and get back to normal. But I realized that this was actually very bad. Uh, Had I passed out, that would have been it. My wife would have come home to see me laying King Henry VIII style on the floor with a turkey leg in my hand. Uh, And that would have been a bad thing. She doesn't need that. So I want you all to go to the link on the website or Google Self Heimlich so you know what to do in this thing. And Self Heimlich is basically you're going to put your fists beneath your rib cage right by your sternum. And then fall on that fall as hard as you can smash your face into the ground. It doesn't matter. It requires a lot of will, but you need to do this over and over again until you dislodge that Turkey or whatever, because if you don't, you're going to die. Another thing you should do. And again, you've got very limited time here is go someplace public. I didn't think of this. I was just in the apartment. Um, I should have run out into the hallway. Yeah. In my underwear or whatever, it doesn't matter. We're talking about life and death here. I should have run out into the hallway and no, I couldn't have yelled for help because that's one of the things you can't do when you don't have air in your lungs. So yeah, take a moment and just look at the self Heimlich, be aware of it because it's what came to my mind when I was in the situation. And if I didn't have that and I wasn't able to get that little bit of air passed, um, this podcast would not be narrated by me. So, folks, thank you very much for listening, and thank you for all your patience with me and the Antarctica stuff and all that. Um, I've done a bad thing podcast-wise, and I've interrupted my flow, but we're going to get back. And as always, music is by Simon Wagg. If you'd like to get a hold of me, I'm Jeff at BuiltToGo.com. That's two Ts, not three, not one. And until next time, remember the words of Barbara Grizzuti Harrison. There are places one comes home to that one has never been to before.